Jesus, who is the sinless one, he was born without sin and will live without sin. Yet the sinless one, even his mother, is submitted to the same ritual uncleanness that teaches about the sinfulness of birth. When he, meaning Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So in those verses there, we are told of three acts of obedience that Mary and Joseph partake in with the young baby Jesus in accordance with the law of the Lord. In these verses, we, we read that phrase five times, the law of the Lord. So Luke is telling us here, first of all, of this testimony of the Christ child, but he's also wanting to speak to us of the obedience of Mary and Joseph and by connection of the obedience of Jesus. So we're told here of this obedience that takes place. And what Luke is showing us is that Jesus is the perfect law obeyer. He is the perfect law keeper, even as an infant. Because, of course, Jesus didn't walk himself to the temple. Jesus didn't come and present himself for circumcision. His parents, Mary and Mary's husband, Joseph, do that. So even as an infant... Luke is presenting to us a picture of the Messiah who is the perfect law keeper, the perfect law obeyer. And in so doing, he's presenting to us the, the one who is the perfect Messiah for us, the perfect Christ for us. Do you know that if Christ had come and died for us and bore the penalty for all of our sin and then rose again on the third day, and that was all he did, that you and I would still spend eternity separated from the presence of God. We could receive full forgiveness for every sin we've ever committed. And that would not be enough for us to spend eternity with our maker. Because we would then have nothing to commend us to God. We would not have a righteousness to commend us to Him. We would be forgiven sinners but we would nevertheless have nothing about our life to commend us to God because the prophet Isaiah tells us very clearly that even the best act of righteousness on our part is as filthy rags. So Christ came to do two things. He came to pay the penalty for our sin, but he also came to live a righteous life on your behalf so that, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Paul doesn't say there that Jesus was made to be sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin, although he was. Paul says there that he was made to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that he would live this perfect life of perfect law keeping. And the perfect law keeping that he accomplished 
is given to us by faith so that being forgiven of our sins, we now have the righteous life of the perfect law keeper to commend us unto God. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish one single law. I came to fulfill them for you. I came to live them for you. I came to do what you couldn't do to fulfill them on your behalf so that you could stand before your maker, not only forgiven of your sins, but clothed in the righteousness that I achieved for you. This is why Jesus couldn't just come for a weekend. Right? I mean, because all the important things happened on a weekend, right? Jesus was crucified on a Friday, spent Saturday in the tomb, rose on Sunday, right? So couldn't Jesus just come for a long weekend and get everything done in those three days? No. He had to live a full, complete, righteous, sinless, law-keeping life on your behalf. And all this begins even as an infant in this perfect obedience as he's taken to obey this. But here we see something else. We're going to see really a dramatic picture of the whole problem that for which Jesus came. Again, verse 21, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle, turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here we see three acts of obedience that each speak to us dramatically of the whole problem of sin for which Jesus came to solve, to rectify. First of all, we see the circumcision. And so circumcision, we know that that every Jewish male boy was circumcised at the uh, eighth. Usually males are boys, right? Every Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day. And so we know that the circumcision is the sign of the covenant and everything. However, circumcision is one of those things, I don't know if there's anything else that shows up more frequently in our Bibles that finds its way less frequently into our sermons than circumcision. I mean, circumcision is all over your Bible. However, you don't hear it from the pulpit very often, right? Because it's not exactly one of those things that's comfortable to talk about. But the circumcision, the sign of circumcision was something that was incredibly important to God's people. Now, we won't take the time to go through the meaning of the circumcision, but we do want to say this, that the circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Now, why was that the sign that God chose? The covenant is in the seed and the sign has to do with the seed. That was God's promise from Genesis chapter 3. I, I, through the seed of the woman, will defeat the seed of the serpent. So the covenant is in the seed. The, co- the, co- the covenant comes to us by way of the seed. And that's what this sign is showing us. So this sign, this, this most personal sign of God's people comes to God's people. Every male, every male of the Jew comes to them, but it doesn't come to them without blood and pain. This in itself is speaking just of the continuing problem of sin, that even the sign of God's people comes to them by way of blood and by way of pain. So those of us in the room who are parents of boys, 
We probably remember for us, it was, I think it was it, our four boys were less than a day old. When they take them, the nurse comes and takes them and, and does the procedure. And I wasn't there for any of those procedures. I'm glad I wasn't. I probably would have gotten weak at the knees to see that being done to a one day old baby because that's a painful sort of thing. And so here, the the very sign of the covenant is something that comes to God's people by way of blood and by way of pain. Here is the Messiah that has come to take away the curse of sin. And he himself begins by being submitted to the same blood and the same pain that has bloodied his people and pained his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. The very Messiah who has come to resolve the sin problem is himself submitted to the pain of the problem. So this is the circumcision on the eighth day. But we also see this other thing going on. Luke says, at the end of the eighth day, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. So what's this purification about? Well, we read from Leviticus this is in your notes, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, that a couple things take place with the birth of a child. First of all, if the child is a male, then on the eighth day, there's the circumcision that we just talked about. But in addition to that, there's also this uncleanness that takes place after the birth of a child, and the mother remains unclean for those first eight days until the circumcision, and then for an additional 33 days, all totaling 40 days. So there's this period of uncleanness that the mother experiences after birth that lasts for 40 days. This also coincides with the period of seven days of uncleanness that coincides with the menstrual cycle. So let's talk for just a minute about this uncleanness. For those in the room who have been in the room for the birth of a child, What can be difficult is to separate the idea of the uncleanness of the birth mother from anything physical, because that's kind of a messy process. And it's easy to think of the uncleanness of the mother and kind of get that mixed up with physical uncleanness. That's not what God's talking about. God's not talking about any type of physical uncleanness. He's talking about ceremonial uncleanness. Ritual uncleanness. Uncleanness that would render the mother, as the Leviticus passage tells us, unable to come into the assembly of God's people for 40 days. There's this one period in which she can come into the assembly for the circumcision of the child on the eighth day, and then she goes back into her time of purification for 33 more days. So, Nothing to do with physical uncleanliness, but ceremonial uncleanliness for 40 days. What is all that about? The Old Testament law is like a mantra telling us over and over and over again one message, and that is the problem of sin. It's teaching us over and over, sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. All of that was part of the process of preparing a people to receive Messiah. A people who had been prepared to understand the problem of sin. That's what the Old Testament law is doing. And so in this specific law, what this is speaking to us of 
is the fact that the scriptures teach us that our sinful nature is given to us at birth. And that's the whole point. That's the point of the uncleanness with the menstrual cycle. And that's the the point of the uncleanness after birth is to say, God has given you the greatest gift of mankind, which is a baby made in the image of God. What a precious gift. But this gift comes in the context of sinfulness. Because even as this beautiful baby is given to this couple, in this example, Mary and Joseph, they're first. This beautiful baby is given to them. Even as it's given to them, they're reminded in giving birth to this child, we gave birth to a sinner. We gave birth to one who, like us, is under the curse of sin. And so this period of ritual uncleanness is a reminder. The birth process passes on the sin nature. So now here's Messiah. Born to Mary. Joseph is her husband, yet Joseph is not her biological father. Jesus, who is the sinless one, his father is the heavenly father above. He was born without sin and will live without sin. Yet the sinless one, even his mother, is submitted to the same ritual uncleanness that teaches about the sinfulness of birth. Isn't that fascinating? This section of Luke is is a tremendous passage to show us the ironies surrounding the birth of Messiah. The sinless one, born without sin, has his mother enter into this period of separation to illustrate the sinfulness of all birth mothers. Yet he is here to take away that scourge. So that's what we see in this 40 days of purification. But we also see there's a sacrifice, the sacrifice of two turtle doves or two pigeons. Pigeons, my understanding of pigeons is of the same species as a dove, that the words are interchangeable. If anybody is an expert on birds, maybe you can correct me there, but my understanding is that they're the same species and the words are interchangeable. So it could be the sacrifice of two turtle doves or two pigeons or two doves. I think that there's a choice given there because I understand turtle doves are migratory birds, and so perhaps due to the time of year, perhaps there weren't turtle doves available and they could give doves as sacrifices. But in either case, we're not told which one Mary and Joseph do, but they give this sacrifice, this sin offering, this sin offering that was to be given upon the birth of their child. So the irony just even gets thicker, doesn't it? Mary has given birth to the sacrifice. And she gives a sacrifice for the sacrifice. The one who will end the sacrifices. The one who himself will be the perfect and the final sacrifice. Yet, as this reminder of the oppression of sin that remains upon the human race, this constant reminder, birth has passed down sin. This sin nature is passed along from mother to child, from father to child, from father to child. This reminder, and then the the parents give this sacrifice as a sacrifice of atonement for their sin. And the sacrifice, they, they enter into the temple in their arms is the very sacrifice that will take away the sacrifices. 
And then lastly, there is a second sacrifice that they must give, and that is what's called the redemption tax or the ransom tax. Now we're told in the scriptures that the ransom tax, we won't go into the explanation there, but the ransom tax was a tax of five shekels that was to be paid upon the birth of a child or the firstborn child. And so God has declared in the Old Testament, He declares that the firstborn child is His and and that firstborn child should be given to Him for service or ransomed for a cost of five shekels. And so they pay this ransom or this redemption tax. And so you see here, the one who is here to redeem his people, the redemption tax is paid for him. The one who is here to be a ransom has the ransom paid for him. So all of this just serves us as great reminders of what Jesus has come to do. And even it's like this cloud. This this has to be the happiest time of Mary and Joseph's life. If you're parents, you think of, just that time when the first when the first one was born, if you have more than one, what a joyful time. What a happy time. And in the midst of the joyfulness of that period, it's like this cloud is there saying, yes, but there's the problem of sin. Yes, but there's the problem of sin. Yes, but there's a problem of sin. Only in this occasion, the one who was born was born to take away that problem. So now, that's what I think Luke is showing us. Then one final thing, and then we'll be done this morning. One final thing, and this is my favorite part of the passage. Look back up with me at verse 21. And then at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here we're told that Jesus was circumcised, which imagine, think for just a moment, of Mary and Joseph, and just think of their obedience as they offered Jesus up to be to be circumcised. Just think of their obedience. So this circumcision, this was, of course, the days uh, prior to medical cleanliness, prior to the, the knowledge of bacteria and those sorts of things and sterilization of, of whatever instruments were used to circumcise the baby boys. So it goes without saying, doesn't it, that certainly there would have been infections, and sicknesses that were caused by circumcisions in those days. And here's Mary who offers up the boy Jesus, the baby Jesus, for circumcision. Now, any mother, I'm certain, would have had second thoughts at that because you know that they've heard of so-and-so's baby who got this bad infection or so-and-so's baby who got sick from this. And so any mother would have had second thoughts. But Mary is the mother of Messiah, Just imagine, imagine if you were the caretaker of Messiah and you let Messiah get sick. Her obedience is full and total. Her trust is full and total. The temptation would have been there to just be this protecting wall around Messiah. Imagine being the parents of Jesus as Jesus was a young boy. You know what it's like to be a parent. You sort of look out the window and you see the six-year-old 25 feet up in the tree. You know, and you think your first thought is, that's my kid out there. Your second thought is, wow, that's, he's pretty high up there. That could be serious if he fell out of there, right? So you have that sort of instinct that kicks in that you're like, oh, we don't want this child to die. Imagine being the parent of Messiah. I mean, he's the Messiah of Israel. What if you let Messiah fall off a cliff and die? You know? So this obedience as they lend him up to this circumcision, 
But then the naming. So apparently the naming took place at the circumcision event because Luke tells us the same thing for John. As John was circumcised, he was named John. So apparently that's when the naming took place was at the event of circumcision and they named him Jesus. So let's think about this for just a moment. Jesus is the only baby in all of human history to ever name himself. No other baby has ever named himself. There have been adults that renamed themselves because they didn't like their first name. There's even been adults that renamed themselves a couple of times, like the artist formerly known as Prince, right? So sometimes adults will change their name. Sometimes people, as they grow into their teenage years or their older childhood years, sometimes they maybe aren't crazy about the name that they're going by and they'll sort of choose a different nickname or some friends or something will, will stick them with a nickname and sometimes a, cha- a name will kind of change. Maybe you know somebody in your life that you, you knew them at a period in their life when they went by one name and then later on you reconnect to them and now they're going by, has that ever happened to you? And you reconnect and now they're going by a different name, how weird that is. So sometimes adults will change their name, but there has never in the history of humankind ever been a baby who chose their own name. We're told that Jesus was called Jesus. He's given the name Jesus because that was the name given by the angel Gabriel. Luke specifically says, before he was conceived. So the angel Gabriel, of course, is the messenger of God. Jesus is the son of God. And so Jesus himself tells Gabriel what to tell Mary to name him. And he picks Jesus. So think about a name. Think about your name. Doesn't your name just have a ring to it? Doesn't your, aren't your ears just especially tuned to the sound, to the vocal sounds of your name in such a way that you can hear your name spoken in a crowded room on the other side of the room and immediately it gets your attention? Isn't that how your brain works? That something about the sound of your name is just deeply ingrained into your ears, into your brain, so that when you hear it, it something connects and resonates because that's your name. Now, none of us have chosen our name except Jesus. Jesus chose his. So think of just how many hundreds of thousands of times you've heard your name. Think of how many hundreds of thousands of times Jesus heard his name. Now, knowing all of that, what did Jesus want people to call him? Being able to choose what sound he would answer to hundreds of thousands of times. What sound, what word did Jesus choose? He chose, of course, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus wanted to hear in his ears tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of times. He wanted to hear. He wanted to answer to Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. He wanted that to be the sound that was so close to his heart, so close to his ears that when he heard that on the other side of the room, his ears would prick up. Yahweh saves. You know what that tells us? 
in a very subtle sort of way, but a, but a clear sort of way, that says to us of God's delight in saving lost people. In such a way that Jesus would say, hmm, what do I want people to call me? King of kings? Nah. Lord of lords? Nah. Almighty one? Nah. Everlasting, powerful Lord, God Almighty? No. I want to be called Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. That's what I want to be the sound that I hear over and over through my entire life. Yahweh says, because those words are so precious to me, the truth and the reality that I am a God who delights in saving lost people. God is not a God that has to have his arm twisted. God is not a God that that sort of gets backed into a corner by this cross thing. And, And when a sinner repents, God's up there in heaven saying, well, you really do deserve hell and I wish I could throw you in hell, but doggone it, that cross thing is now in the way. So I guess I got to forgive your sins. He delights, it is his greatest pleasure to forgive sinners. That is what brings such pleasure to his heart. Zephaniah 3 and verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. If Jesus says the angels rejoice at one sinner who repents, how do you think the master of those angels rejoices when one sinner repents? And so Jesus picks his name. He says, this is what I want to hear. I just want to hear people call me Yahweh saves because that is the, the delight of my heart. 